This is verse 1, chapter 26, the book of Acts. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known it for a long time. If they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem, not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus Damascus, with authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and with those who journeyed with me. And when we'd fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant, a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing But what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24, And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. (coughs) King Agrippa, 
Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all those who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord, and let's pray in his name. Father in heaven, we thank you for another opportunity, and this on Easter Sunday morning, to examine these scriptures, millennia old as they are, and ask you to do what you've done so many times prior. Open to us what this means so we can understand it, and give us what's necessary to be changed by it, to be obedient, and to look more like you. We ask all this in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, some background on what we just read. That's a lengthy passage. I know we have guests with us today, those who've not been studying this book for well over a year, so it's a little difficult to jump right in 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 a context and expect folks to understand where we are. So a little background as, as to your Bibles, and for the purpose of putting one of those little arrows that says you are here, kind of on a big map, uh, we've got 66 books here, 39 are the Old Testament, 27 are the New Testament. The Old Testament has all the stories you may be familiar with from Sunday school, that's where you meet people like Samson, that's where King David, Goliath, lots of kings, lots of battles. By the time you get to the New Testament, though... It starts out with four Gospels. The Gospels are basically uh, written from an eyewitness account about the same thing. All four of them tell us what Jesus did while he was here on this earth. They start out, two of them, with the Christmas story. We're familiar with that. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And there's prophecies that foretell that it would happen there and then and why. But if you keep going, this baby in a manger grows up. And there's not a lot of ink given over to his childhood, but perhaps one of the the grandest dramatic scenes is when he, with his cousin, John the Baptist, who's by the Jordan River baptizing people in repentance, Jesus comes along and John introduces him as the Lamb of God, which will take away the sin of the world. And immediately he begins his public ministry. That's about three years. That's most of the contents of those Gospels. And he heals the sick. He teaches mightily when he's done teaching. Droves of people say this man speaks with authority, not like the the scribes, the Pharisees, the professionals. So he begins to draw massive crowds because of the miracles and because of his teaching. Pharisees don't like this because it's upsetting their status quo. He's teaching where people are understanding, where they teach and people are only confused. And and the process of time after these three years of his public ministry are over, the Pharisees have had about all they can take. And this plot against him is hatched. They work with one of his disciples named Judas. And he's sold for 30 pieces of silver. In the middle of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas gives him a kiss. They know it's him. They take him into custody. By Friday morning, 
he's hung on a cross, he dies, and spends until Sunday morning in a tomb. Morning of the third day, he's not there anymore. That's what we're celebrating today. He's risen. And then over the course of a few weeks, he is seen of some of these people, alive, not dead. And his men stand on this hillside before he ascends into heaven, and he gives them one specific task. You're going to tell everybody else what I've told you. You don't have permission necessarily to make up stuff as you go because it's important because you were with me. No, it's, it's my story, what I did, the way I did it. You're my witnesses. Go tell everybody. Now, once you've gotten through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are four stories. They're four different individuals, so they tell the story a little differently. But Jesus is gone. So if you're, if you're thinking this is like made for the, the screen and this is a series, what do you do when Jesus leaves? He's in heaven now. What in the world do you do for next season? Who's going to want to pay attention? Jesus is gone. Well, the next season is the book of Acts. And that's what the 12 apostles, well, one hung himself, that'd be Judas, so they replaced him. But Acts is the story of those men doing exactly what Jesus told them. They started in Jerusalem, then went to Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. We know it worked because we're talking about it in Fuqua Verena. They got the message out. And this book, we're in the 26th chapter, but it starts with these disciples. We read a lot about Peter and Paul and James, but by the time you get halfway through, it's all about Paul. And for the last month or so, it's been about Paul's trials. It shouldn't come as a surprise that the people who killed Jesus because they didn't believe he was who he said he was were out to kill people who preached about Jesus saying that he was who he claimed he was. So that's why Paul is in custody. That's why he's on trial. And it's this business of the resurrection that's got him in hot water. And we're reading as he defends this in real time, in a real historic event. These are real people. This is real history. So there's your background. What we'll look at now is a few implications from that courtroom scene. It's a lot of words. And if we took time to study each of them, go line by line, we'd be here until next Easter. So sometimes you skip along to make the point. And there are some implications. They're not quite like applications where when you read through certain portions of the Bible, it's clear. You're to go do this. Well, this is implications. Because this is true, other things have changed. Uh, on the level of game changing in this passage, whether or not Jesus really did raise from the dead. So we'll look at a few implications. And then before we're done, we'll go to the end of what we read. And we'll look at an example from Paul defending his faith as an eyewitness account. And we'll see if there's anything we can learn from that as well. So let me give you a quick rundown of the last few weeks. If you were not with us, this theme of the resurrection of the dead has come up prior to today. When we were back in chapter 23, Paul was defending himself against the Jews. Uh, this was the Jerusalem uh, council, uh, not the one that, that was together with those that are believers, but those that are not. And he says in his defense, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Let's just get down to brass tacks and start talking about what you're really angry about. Well, this kicked off a riot within the room. 
looked like he was going to get pulled in apart, uh, the tribune said, so they took him back into custody. When you get to chapter 24, different group. He's talking to them. He says, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. That was chapter 23. Other than this one thing that I cried out while I was standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you. He repeats himself from the previous chapter. That was the thing that got him in trouble. They agree? Then last week, or week before last week in chapter 25, well, that was last week. I get my weeks mixed up. When the accusers stood up, this is in a Roman situation, they brought no charges in his case, such as evils as I suppose. In fact, you've really got uh, Festus writing to Agrippa, the governor writing to the king, and he's explaining these things. Um, Verse 19, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserts to be alive. That's the best as I can give it to you, king. This is from the governor. This man thinks that that man that we crucified 30 years ago lived to tell about it. That's basically what they're discussing. It means nothing to us, but it means everything to them. They want him dead. And then what we just read a moment ago in chapter 26, Paul just puts it in the form of a question. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? There's probably a lot tucked away in there. He's not home field advantage with the Jews who want him dead. He's with a Roman outfit. You've got a king here and a governor, and they're all wearing their fancy stuff. This is for entertainment purposes. He's a high-level prisoner. They want to hear what he has to say. And he's asking them all, isn't that the purpose of your religion in the first place, that there's more to life than this, that we expect an afterlight when this is over? I mean, really, if you're going to have a God who can't raise people from the dead, what good is that God in the first place? Now, there's more to it as far as he's concerned than that, but that's kind of his opening words. So let's just discuss a few of the implications that would fall out of this question. Is this true? Not only is there an afterlife, but is Jesus the gateway to it? Is he the first to rise from the dead, and does he have the power to do that for everyone else by forgiving their sins once they've placed their trust in him? That'd be a good question. So, if Paul, and let's just run different angles looking at this and see if the situation would shake out any differently. If Paul had only claimed that this certain Jesus lived in his heart, would that change the charges against him? Would he be standing there in the first place? I think it would change it drastically. I mean, who's going to argue with that? If he wants to say, I thought a lot about this teacher, and so did many of you. He's a great teacher, moral teacher. Nobody could say anything against the guy. He lived what he preached. And now that he's gone, and now that I'm a preacher, I think it ought to be okay with everybody else if he's the inspiration in my life. The meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. That's what Chicago was talking about, right? He's just a really good guy, and I really want to pattern my ministry after him. Okay, whatever you want to do, Paul. But you wouldn't expect us to believe that that's really true. Isn't that kind of the way we operate now as Americans? Whatever you want to do is fine with whatever you want to do. If whatever's fine with what I want to do is all right, that I do what I want to do. 
we'll lay off each other. Everybody can just do their own thing. I don't think that would have been a big deal. Or if Paul maintained that Jesus was in heaven at the moment. Again, don't all heroes go to heaven, especially the moral ones that we all wish we were like? We would like to think that. Nobody wants to gather at a funeral and say, well, this is it. There's nothing else. Now, intellectually, we may have such a difficult time with the supernatural that we live quite naturally. That's it. But then again, don't we really wish it were that way? I mean, do we really feel like we got everything out of this life that we wanted? Do we really feel we were treated fairly such that there's no use for a judgment at the end where all the bad guys really pay and all the good guys are rewarded? Now, that's one way to look at it, but that won't happen if there's no such thing. So, bottom line, I think we have to believe that Paul believed what he was saying if no one else in the room believed it. You ever felt that way? You had a friend that they believed something, but it, it wasn't really the truth, but they really believed it. Nobody had the heart to tell him, hey, that's just not the way it works. Right? You kind of feel pity for that type of a situation. Maybe that's the way they feel. But the implications being, if Jesus was dead, then all the accusations against Paul were legitimate. Even if he's in heaven or he's just his inspiration, um, you know, the way Paul is acting and the way Paul is preaching is contrary to the law. They have an actual case of blasphemy. Whether he believes it, he's still preaching it. Now, if Jesus is alive, if Paul's telling the truth, then all that the prophets said and all that Moses said point to Jesus. And Paul is correct, but that means something none of them even want to contemplate. That means this is the game changer of all time, that God really did send his only son into the world to be human and God at the same time, to do what man couldn't do for themselves and live a perfect life. And then on the basis of that perfect life lived, he'll credit those sinners a perfect life. In exchange for their sin, he'll put on his shoulders, die on the cross to pay for it all. His father's happy. His arms are wide open. And it's salvation for everybody. But what you've got to do is put every egg in your future basket, as far as eternity is considered, in with Jesus. If I have the hope of heaven, if I'm going to get there and see it, it's not because of what I do. It's everything to do with what that Jewish carpenter did 2,000 years ago. That's what I'm going to hang my hopes on. And that's where people start to say, come on, really? In fact, uh, Festus interrupts the conversation between Paul and Agrippa to say, you've lost your mind. And that's what most of the world would say to us, too. This is kind of a joke to them, especially on a day where we're all dressed up like this, right? On a day where Walmart's going to beat us as far as attendance goes. Maybe if we count all the churches together, we can beat Walmart for, you know, until lunch or something. They were supposed to laugh at some of this. (laughs) It's a joke. Let's keep going. That a man named Jesus lived is no problem. Even the historians, serious ones, admit the case is just too much evidence that the guy really lived. So we've got to at least credit that. Bart Ehrman wrote a book about it. 
He's convinced there was a historical Jesus. Um, everyone knows there's a church that followed after Jesus left. Church grew very large and very quickly. Why? Because people like believing in a joke who said he was going to be risen from the dead but didn't? No, because a bunch of people actually believed it actually happened. That's why you have a church. That's why we're talking today. But on the other side of the coin, let's say these are cases four. What do you make about the, the massive amount of people who say Jesus was a great teacher? And they might even admit that he himself said he would return from the dead, but don't believe that that actually happened. That kind of messes with your idea of a good teacher, right? If, if, if the good teacher taught mostly good stuff, but then predicted, you know, that the world would end on a certain date and it didn't end on that certain date. Do you keep buying those books? Now, they show up on eBay and they're sold for about a dollar a piece just so you can say, hey, I had one of these joke books or whatever. No, there's the church that stands as an example. Or other religions that would say or respect Jesus as a prophet. What do they say? Well, a lot of them say that the Bible was tampered with that they made up the part of his rising from the dead because they wanted their Savior to be better than the other Saviors. Okay, if it was made up, let's say that it's tampered with, why would you write a story like the one we've got in our lap? Morning of the third day when Jesus rose from the dead, who are the first people to see him? Women. Could women testify in court at that time? No. Now, if I was making up the story and Jesus raised from the dead, I'd have him go straight to Pilate. You were asking what truth is about, were you? Well, here... It... But I'm not making up the story. The story is recorded as it took place. But it kind of messes with the idea that, hey, the Bible can't be relied upon. Uh, what about the 11 disciples who did survive? You know, Judas hung himself, but there's 11 Except for John, they were all martyred. When it came down to it, you're either going to recant and you're going to say that this stuff you're preaching is foolishness or we're going to kill you for it. And they chose death? Who dies for a lie? I mean, really, anybody. If you know that it's all made up, but you're going to die for it so that other people can live a happy life? I don't know about that because in the back of your mind, how are they going to live a happy life when eventually they find out that this is all a lie? Somebody's going to squeal. So that 11 men die, and that's historical record too. And there were way more than that as the centuries rolled on. Nobody does that. Some say Jesus didn't really die in the first place, that he was mostly dead. But... I don't know. If you were going to try to figure out a way where you're sentenced and you hope that maybe there's a chance that you survive the execution, there's people that survived the electric chair. There's people that have survived a messed up lethal injection. There's people that have survived a firing squad. But a Roman cross, if there's one thing that Romans were good at, it was killing people. They designed that to be the most excruciating method of death there ever was. Why? As a deterrent. And they did it publicly. So everybody that walked by would know, don't do what we told you not to do or this will happen to you. So that one doesn't work very well either. 
And then for those who contend that this was all wish fulfillment, you know what wish fulfillment is? That's basically uh, Disney's jam. You know, if you just clap your hands or you wish really hard, what you want will happen. And there are people, there's, there's psychological grounds for this, that if you tell yourself a, a lie but tell yourself it's the truth long enough, you'll eventually begin to believe it. Um, but then why are all the gospel accounts, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, unified in stating that none of the disciples thought this would happen and were very slow to believe it after it even did? So it wasn't like they concocted the whole thing and it's this massive hoax. And when the women went to anoint the body on the morning of the third day, they went with spices to anoint a dead body. They weren't expecting him not to be there. So the reason for the belief that Jesus rose from the dead, there's two basic reasons. One is an empty tomb, and two is post-death appearances of Jesus. In one reference, we've got that there were upward of 500 who saw him at once. Now, if you had one or the other, you probably don't have much. If it's just an empty tomb, well, somebody stole the body. If you've just got a bunch of people saying, hey, we saw him, well, you've got a tomb with a body in it, so that's not a problem. But if you have an empty tomb, no body, and a bunch of people that saw him, then you've got something that needs investigation when you say... I mean, at what point would you start believing there might be something to this? It's a fan, it's crazy study to see human behavior and how people believe things as they hear it from others. But in this case, um, what's, what's interesting, and I hear this over and over and over and over and over again, that the Bible requires your faith, your blind faith. And there are places where it does. Uh, whenever we're thinking about heaven, nobody has a reference point for that. So you basically just got to use your imagination and trust the Lord that he knows what he's talking about. But when it comes to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we aren't expected to take that by faith. You're expected to take it on the basis of the witnesses who saw it themselves. So that, I, most people, just, well, we believe the Bible because, you know, God wrote it. Well, God wrote it in such a way that he wrote it through real people in real time, who saw real things and wrote it down with real words. So if you believe that Jesus died, was buried, rose again the third day, you believe that. Why? Because there are people that wrote it down who saw it. Your belief is based off the belief of others backward a long time. There's this fellow named Michael Patton. Uh, he said some things in a blog. It's been shared quite a bit since. I'll post it uh, with this message when we get that up on the website next week. Uh, if you want to look at it. But he's the one that is famous for saying that Christianity would be the easiest of all religions to discredit if you could only discredit one thing, and that would be the resurrection. The whole thing would fall if you could do it. But you can't do it because the evidence is, is, is too good, says this guy. Then he begins to compare it to other religions where he says you've got Hinduism and Buddhism but they don't have this grand historical narrative attached to it like, say, the Scriptures does. So it, it's, it's, a little, it's a little different. Uh, no easier to discredit, but there's no... 
you've seen the movies. If you've got to blow up the big battle station, there's one target. You hit that, you blow the whole thing up, right? Well, with these religions, there's too many targets to try to figure out how to blow it all up. And then you've got other religions, say like Islam or Mormonism, where all the revelation came to one individual. So it's not you've got 500 people that saw Jesus alive and disciples who are dying for it and a big church that's grown up almost out of nowhere. You've just got this one guy who had one dream from one angel or from God. And if you don't believe it, really the only thing you can do is argue against the character of Muhammad or Joseph Smith. But it's different than this story. Um, that's all based on one individual. And it's very hard to prove, period, right or wrong, because you're dealing with someone else's experience. But the way Christianity is so different than all the others is that Jesus' ministry, the three years of it, was public. The miracles happened publicly. The teaching happened publicly. The Pharisees came out and listened to it publicly and got mad at it publicly. When they'd had enough, they publicly brought him into trial. Now, it happened in the middle of the night, and there are people out in the courtyard, but everybody knows what's going, and he had to come down through the Kidron Valley with all the torches. We've arrested this guy. It's public. And then because they needed more than they had to carry out the execution, they go to Rome. Pilate's in there. The trial is public. They bring him out. Which do you want, this guy or Barabbas? They all scream, hey, we want Barabbas. Kill Jesus. Away with him. And then the burial was public. He stationed guards at the tomb to make sure nobody came and stole the body away and put wax, you remember the story, all around with the king's seal so that if anybody tampered with it, they'd know that it had been tampered with. Big stone, right? And then what about the resurrection? Well, was that public? No, when they got there, it was empty and nobody was inside. But then Jesus starts making these public appearances to the 12 of the Sea of Galilee and then to upwards of 500 and then with the disciples when he goes back into heaven. So if you're trying to poke holes in this, you've got a lot of people to discredit. And where you had maybe one person saying, I got a vision from God, y'all should listen up. You've got the public going out and saying, hey, all this stuff that Moses and the prophets said would happen actually did, and that's him. We should have known it earlier. We missed it, but now it all adds up. It couldn't be anyone other than him, and we've seen him alive. Totally different stories. If you want to look into it, read it for yourself. So with all that said, let's look at Paul's example of how he stands in defense of this that we've been talking about and singing about and see what he does with it because he's just one of them, one of many. And this is like 25, 30 years down the road since Jesus has been gone back into heaven. Look back at verse 22. Try to imagine in your mind this, this situation we, last week when it began. They came in with great pomp, Right? They're all in their fancy outfits. This is Rome. They always have a big, huge, strong visual uh, impression. And then you got this Jew. We talked about the description of him with uh, the mono brow and the bald head and the bowed legs and the beaked nose. Not making that up. That's some historical description. I remember listening to Alistair Begg say, boy, don't we wish we had recordings of all this so we could hear how he asked Agrippa if he believed in the prophets. 
She said, certainly it's not a Southern Baptist accent. That would ruin the whole thing, wouldn't it? And it wouldn't work if it was Irish. She said, I'm thinking in my mind, Dustin Hoffman. And uh, Maybe. I don't know. But keep all that in your head. He says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ, that be the Messiah, this is the office, not the name. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the office of Messiah that the prophets had said was coming, even from the mouth of God. That that office must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to Gentiles. It's the message of the salvation of the world. It's John three sixteen, Verse 24, And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, this is when Festus butts in. Paul, you're out of your mind. How does he respond to that? I'm not out of my mind. And then a courteous response, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. Now, if you're going to claim that you speak true and rational words... Don't you think that your audience can be the judge of that? I mean, either you sound credible and reasonable and logic, logical, or you come off as a crackpot. I think Agrippa's listening. Festus doesn't get it because he doesn't have the background. But I mean, think about it. How many churches with scandals did people come back and later say, we should have known. I mean, the guy was basically just talking about his own two cents all the time. And he'd use little verses here and there to jump off of, to make his point. But basically, it was the pastor so-and-so show, and it's imploded, and everybody's hurt as, as a result of it. You have to speak truth logically in order to claim that you're speaking truth logically. Or it doesn't work. I think he's able to say it. Let's keep going. For the king knows about these things. Now, that's probably the biggest weight when you say, I mean, if you're standing there in chains, the whole room's looking at you. Somebody's already called you an idiot. You say, I'm not. I'm speaking the truth. And the king knows about these things. Knows about what? Who is that king? It's the last of the Herodian dynasty. It's Herod Agrippa II. Now, there was a Herod in what? The Christmas story? Do you remember that, Herod? That's Herod the Great. He's the one that built Caesarea, the aqueducts, Herod's temple, all that stuff. Go read about it. You don't need a Bible to read about it. Big dude. He was the one that killed the baby boys when some wise men told him there was a king coming, the king of the Jews. He didn't want any competition, so he just killed all the babies. And then you got his son, who would later kill John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, cutting off his head because there was that lady who danced so pretty at the party. He said, you can have whatever you want, and that's what she wanted. And then you got another Herod, be a grandson, and he's the one that killed James, one of the apostles, with a sword. And then you got Agrippa II. Bad dudes. This guy knows the whole story. He's heard it all his life. He knows exactly who Jesus is. He knows who Pilate was. He knows the whole ordeal. It's been some time. But Paul can look him in the face and say, 
The king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. I can speak boldly because I've got the truth. I'm not making this up. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. How is it we're talking about this two years, 2,000 years later? It wasn't done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe, because Agrippa was Jewish, been raised Jewish. He's working for Rome. That's the way they did it. They'd hire a local, give him all the authority. He'd live in excess and abusively, but he knew the people and they knew him. That's what's going on here. And he says, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian? You think this little discussion is going to change my mind? That might be one way we could reread that. But what does Paul say? Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day may become such as I am, except for these chains. I don't know about a winsome response, but here you've got this prisoner standing in front of the king and the governor. He's been called crazy. And then he's been kind of goaded. You think I'm going to believe this just over this short little defense? And he said, not just you. Small and great, long or short, I hope you all believe it so that you can know what I know and have what I have except for these. He probably holds up his chains. Now, how's that? Because anytime you hear of abuse or an overthrow of government, or when you've got a group of people that are subjugated under this foreign uh, power, how would you exact justice there? I'll give you all the best that I have and none of my problems? No, we would switch it. You give me that robe and I'll give you these chains and we'll see how you like that. It's not the way he did it. I'm just here as a witness. This isn't my story. It's not my beef. Just telling you what happened. And I wish you would know it. Except for these chains. His chains were his platform. He'd never have the opportunity to even say such things if he hadn't been arrested. God knew all about it. Very winsome. And history tells us that the prisoners were not to speak directly to the officials. Paul didn't worry about that, did he? So here's what happened next. Then the king rose. Music probably started. The governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him left. You know, they probably leave out like they came in. And then we've got this private conversation back here. And uh, we've studied how that Luke knew all kinds of people in high and low places. He probably got this firsthand from people who were in the hallway. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man's doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. He's on his way to Rome because he doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem. So what do you make of that? Is that just a hallway chit-chat among the who's who now that that's over with? Is that kind of what they would talk about? They refer to him as this man the whole time, all the way to the beginning. He has a name. His name is Paul. But it's just kind of another case. They do this all the time. They're walking down the hallway. I'm pretty sure one of them said, so is it Smithfields or Bojangles? Because really, I think there was nothing more on their mind than whatever was next. It doesn't seem to have done much difference. It's basically a BB off a battleship. 
But folks, that's the way it's been for 2,000 years. There's only a few that believe this stuff. Most people don't. Um, I would think that, I don't know if it'd be a majority. That might be any given Sunday. What do people think of when they leave church after they've listened to this old book? Bojangles or Smithfields. What's for lunch? It doesn't really make that big of a difference. But what if it is true? I believe it's true. This job isn't fun all the time. After 20 years, I've become acutely aware that most people, most of the time, aren't listening to any of it. (laughs) I do it anyway, because that's not why I do it. The reason why I do it is because I actually believe it's true. And if it's true, it changes everything. Would it be unfair or, or, or wrong or even cliche to say, I wish you could know what I know, but without the baggage that comes from organized religion and what everybody thinks in this country of people that, that believe that crazy stuff? I'd call it chains. And most of that stuff's goofy stuff. Most of the time, if you're going to go on social media and try to find out what the Christians and non-Christians are warring about, it's going to have to do with all these fringe things. They rarely ever bring up the fact, did he really come? Did he really die? And did he really come back from the dead? That's the litmus test. If that happened, God is real. Why? Because nobody can raise the dead. You know it. It's never happened. Right? It'd be like me coming in here and saying, I know what you're thinking, but I got to tell you, I flew to church this morning myself without an airplane. People can fly. I figured it out. You'd say, well, let's get that search committee together. This one's lost. it, (laughs) Right? And everybody would have an open, shut case. No, the guy's crazy because nobody flies because they've never done it before. But this is a little different because this is life or death and you do have a track record back 2,000 years where it really looks like it really happened or you had a lot of people that were all crazy the same way at the same time and didn't know it. You be the judge. There's one thing that leans in our favor and that is the Holy Spirit of God will confirm this with you. He's not expecting you to believe it without his help. And if you believe it, don't say, well, I'm so smart. Say, he's so big because I could have missed this. Most of the world has. I'm going to have to leave it in your lap because I can't make a decision for you. Neither can anyone else here. We've been singing about it. We're going to sing about it a bit more. And then we're going to go to lunch. Maybe Bojangles. (laughs) Maybe Smith Builds. But I'm sure glad that there's more to life than Smithfields or Bojangles. That when we bury our dead, we don't have to say goodbye eternally. The best is yet to come. It's to be continued. There's more going on. All the things that are wrong will be righted. And because God is good, not because we are special. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for an Easter Sunday. We thank you for a little Jew who had the courage to stand before a Roman king and governor and was able to say, I am not crazy.
but I speak clearly, transparently, logically. These things weren't done in a corner. Lord, I thank you for your, your gift of the Bible and our ability to trust it. Lord, I pray that people would investigate what they've actually got in their laps and, and look at its miraculous fidelity to the originals, how that it can be trusted. Lord, I ask that you bless these families represented here. Bless their homes. Lord, give them relationships that are strong. Lord, may they enjoy their time together. May they be a positive influence on the culture around us. Lord, would you see fit and would it please you to allow not just our homes, but our neighborhoods, our states, our country, your planet, to flourish as we bow the knee and confess you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for your word. And Lord, may you use that word to save souls and for your glory. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.